So I want to invite you to Luke chapter 2, and we will try to pick up there where we have left off over the last couple of weeks. And so in the last couple of weeks, we have spent our time celebrating what Christians historically for a couple thousand years now have called the Advent. That is a season in which we really think critically about the coming of a king, the coming of the Lord, as we reflect not only on a baby being born, but we reflect on a king being born. And, and we begin to, in the sense of anticipation and excitement that we experience in Advent and Christmas, get a glimpse into what might come in an infinitely greater capacity as Jesus returns for his people. So we don't only just celebrate that a baby's been born, which is adorable and cute, but we also anticipate the day in which the king returns. The king comes back for his people and he restores his kingdom fully. And the glimpse of this king in his strange and mysterious and humble birth gives us a glimpse into what might off might happen in the future, even in our own lifetime as Jesus returns. And this is the crazy and mysterious and miraculous thing that we really believe, that not only was a king born by miraculous means 2,000 years ago, which is means to celebrate and wear red and green and put lights on your house, but there's also a king that not only was born 2,000 years ago, but he's coming back and he will come to restore his kingdom fully and take that which is broken and destroyed in the world and make something new and create something perfect and beautiful. So this is the celebration of Advent that, that we begin to anticipate. And we've run through the last couple of weeks as quickly as possible. You'll notice that we, we've been reading through the Bible very quickly, con- trying to, to hopefully see a large swath of things going on. And so for the last couple of weeks, as we've anticipated the birth of Jesus, we've, we've looked at Luke and, and begun to see, I hope, uh, the kind of the themes and the typologies and these kind of pictures and glimpses that he lays down for us at the first chapter that we'll see over and over and over again in the life of Jesus. And so while my hope is that we'll kind of get past the whole baby thing, that we kind of get past the baby scene, that's a common celebration for Christmas, right? And, and our culture seems to like that, and our, our culture seems to embrace that, and oh, that's cool, we're, we'll celebrate a baby, and, and we'll not go to work on that day or the week before, and if maybe you had to work, then that's not so much a celebration. But, but for us and most of the culture, we, we, we're okay with the baby because babies are adorable and babies are cute, and, and baby Jesus is something that makes most people kind of lower their guard at least a little bit, but my hope is that, that we can kind of run through this piece of text very quickly so that we don't just see the baby scene, but we see what really is going on. Reminding you, hopefully, that just like um, Matthew and Luke, there's only a few verses devoted to the actual birth of Jesus. Luke instead wants to set the scene for something much more amazing, much more awesome, something eternal in nature. And the sense that we get around a celebration of the birth of Jesus and all of its celebrations that happen for us in our culture around Christmas are but a shadow of a greater thing. So for some of you who are who just live for Christmas, right, this is like you have this section of shirts and sweaters that are just for this season and this is man you're just wow all the things are coming to pass for you in this season you'll love christmas right there's like a whole section of our attic that has no purpose but to store a place for all the stuff that comes out in this season and for you if this is the culmination of all sorts of great things you've waited for year round then then good for you but i want you to 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 not disparage that but instead see that it's simply a shadow of something greater that all of your dreams will come true that all of our desires will be met but they won't come on any Christmas morning by something you unwrap. Instead, they will come when the king returns with good gifts and forever and ever he will reign. 
So put lights on your houses, right? Wear crazy sweaters. Celebrate lots of good things that we love at Christmas, but see them as simply a glimpse, a shadow, maybe a, a tiny image that we see darkly and, and, and cloudily that is simply to point to something that is to come. But for the rest of you, and I think I should speak to like the rest of you that like you're, you're so hungover from Christmas that you're not here, um, that you, the people who are disappointed with Christmas, maybe for you, Christmas is a, a reminder of all that's broken. And Christmas for you is not joy, but it's actually just like an acute sense of loss. And I have good news for you. All that goes on, all the disappointment that you feel and the cynicism and the, hung, the hangover that you're left with because maybe you didn't get what you wanted or, or maybe you had a great little time with your family and it was much more awkward than even last year. I have good news for you too. All this celebration and your sense of despair is but a picture of what God means to bring about for you in Jesus Christ. So we neither glorify Christmas as the salvation of the world, neither do we demonize it as a, as a, as a moment for cynicism and anger, like all those people that got a Lexus on Christmas. Grr, right? They, they got to walk out and there was a bow on a car. That wasn't me, but, but I don't have to fill myself with cynicism and angst and anger because in the end, that isn't what satisfies. And the sense of jealousy and envy that I have for the people who celebrate Christmas much more happily than I is simply meant to remind me of how much more satisfying Jesus is than all of those things. So when we get kind of past the baby scene, we run through this, I hope we begin to see that God is doing something greater. And I'm going to read through those things in the entirety of Luke chapter 2. So if you'll join me in Luke chapter 2, we'll begin flying through here, seeing some of the beautiful things that God is doing, not just in the birth of Jesus, but all around it. Verse 1, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has now made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. 
And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents taught, excuse me, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She, had not, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting, and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of, of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boys stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? 
Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. I pray that this promise that Simeon speaks about Jesus is true for us as we read the Bible, that behold, this child Jesus will come and he will be a sign for us and like a sword he will pierce our soul so that even the thoughts and our own feelings and our own hearts might be revealed. I hope you notice that as we read this entire chunk of Scripture over the last couple of weeks in the last or this last two chapters of the last couple of weeks, you see that this birth narrative only lasts a couple of verses, right? Did you catch that? The, the whole thing that we've been excited about since at least Thanksgiving, and for some of you, God help you, before then, right? I, we had lights on before Thanksgiving, and I suppose if my parents saw that, they would disown me. Uh, but, but, but this kind of thing that we've been celebrating, this birth of Jesus and, and the inflatable you know, nativity scene or or Frosty the Snowman that's on, outside of our houses for a month now has been leading up to what I hope you saw was only a couple of verses. Luke just kind of throws it out there. Yes, this, according to this passage, verse 4, maybe to verse 7, it showed up. And when the time came for her to give birth, that's a pretty nondescript explanation, isn't it? There's a lot of things we could read into that. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Boom. One verse that describes the birth narrative. So let's recap where we've come. The first announcement that God gives us in Luke is ultimately for Luke to give certainty to Theophilus, his friend. That he would have certainty about some things. Not simply that he would know of Jesus. Not simply that he would understand that Christmas is a time where we celebrate the birth of Jesus. But, but for Theophilus, he says, look, even though there are other accounts of this, I want you to have certainty in what you've heard about this Jesus. I want you to know really who this Jesus is. And certainty, certainty about some things we see played out for the course of these two chapters. Namely, that this is about God. Christmas is about God. So much so that we skim through that the word God shows up more in these first two chapters with a, a level of intensity that's more than three times as common in these couple of chapters in the entirety of the book of Matthew. The word Lord is the exact same thing. And it shows up more, the word Lord and God show up more and more in these couple of chapters than anywhere else in the Bible with no other level of frequency. Why? So that Luke would make sure that you heard loud and clear some certain things, that this story of Christmas isn't just about a baby being born, it's about God doing something. Christmas is about God. Not only is it about God, but it's that Jesus, the one who's being born, is God at work, is God in the flesh, so much so that we use the word Lord. This is about God. Jesus is Lord. He's not just an adorable little baby. Side note here, I want to throw this at you. I don't want to be a Scrooge or Grinch, but, but you'll notice there's very little talk about the silent night. I don't know if you caught this. You have to get to Matthew to hear anything about animals even, but, 
But most of what we celebrate about Christmas isn't here. Did you catch that? There's, there's very little bit about how loud or quiet the night was, wasn't there? Right? And there's, there's little or nothing about how much or how little Jesus cried, right? Was he a good baby? Was he a colicky baby? We really don't know. And so we want to imply some things in the Christmas season that maybe, maybe are true but aren't here. You begin to catch it, you see the drift, that even Christians get sucked in to this particular verse of the Bible and then begin to celebrate all the things that they think show up here, and we miss some of the beautiful things that Luke wants to tell us. Namely, that this baby is not remarkable because it did or did not spit up on someone. It's not remarkable because it did or did not learn how to sleep through the night quickly. It doesn't tell us anything about co-sleeping or, or, or the diapers they use or any of the things that get us really fired up about babies. Instead, Luke wants us to be certain that this baby is the Lord. The Lord. And he spends so little time here, I I put it out there, it's almost as if he's trying to tell you, hey, don't get all caught up on the baby being born thing. Don't get all obsessed with that. He gives us a verse. And they were there, and the time for her, and and, and the time came for her to give birth. And then she gave birth. That Thank you for those two clauses, Luke. It's done. As if to kind of say, look, the the birth is not the important thing. The important thing is that God is doing something here. He's redeeming his people, and this Jesus is the Lord, and he will redeem his people through this baby. So much so that you just saw the the entire narrative played out. The story of the baby being born is is, is this small, but then there's a story about the people who came to visit. Then there's a story about the people who got to meet Jesus. And then there's a story about Jesus growing up in a certain way that's astounding. As we recap, we kind of wrap up our time in Advent. I hope we begin to see some of the most important things about Jesus introduced here. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Lord. That God is doing something here, and he's fulfilling a promise here in Jesus Christ. And I don't want you to miss it. Instead, I want you to see it in all of its splendor, in all of its beauty. And I want to make an argument that is actually greater than anything that this Christmas season has to offer. That in Jesus Christ, God enters into the simple, humble, and unremarkable circumstances that demonstrate that he desires to bring glory to his name. How? By saving and redeeming his people. No matter. Regardless of their helpless state. The story is meant to be a picture that God is doing something. He's entering into very mundane and regular circumstances. He is coming into a place of, He is being present with us and He's doing such a way without a great deal of fanfare. But there's a, a couple of key things that happen. I want us to, to kind of walk through them there and I hope we'll see that God is redeeming His people in a powerful way. God is doing something here. And if I had to summarize it for you, if I had to to have a thesis that isn't just like what I just read to you, I would say it this way simply, that God gladly works in the mess. God is not afraid of the mess. God is not intimidated by the mess. But God happily jumps into the mess. Here's how we see this. Beginning in verse 7, much is made of this. It says that they laid him in a manger because there, were no pla- there was no place for him in the end. It's simply meant to show you that this is kind of a common thing. This is a, a common birth. This is not a noble or prestigious birth. They, they simply returned back home for the census, for the registration, 
and Luke gives us some facts so that we'll know that this is a real story. So let's run through this really quickly. He says that there's a particular time and place in which this happens. Just, just a side note, this is because we want to know this is a historical document. We want to know this is something that actually happened. So it, it doesn't give us an actual date, an exact date, because this isn't something that we, they would have used in this particular time anyway. But when Luke tells us this story, he wants you to know this is a real story. This isn't a myth about a person, uh, and like most, most myths about God coming into the world. This is an actual thing that happened, and it happened when Caesar Augustus was emperor, when, he, when Augustus was Caesar, and when there was a particular governor. We do this all the time. I make these comments all the time, um, and, and it's, not a, it's not an exact thing, but it's, a meant, it's meant to be a correlation to time. So I'll joke, uh, this last week, I think I used the terms uh, somebody gave as a fun gift for my, for my daughters, pop rocks. And, and I just stated, um, to the dismay of my daughters, much probably like the dismay you have when I say Quirinius or Caesar Augustus, I said, hey, I haven't had pop rocks since Reagan was in office which just went right over their heads, and went right over a lot of yours. And it's just a reference to, hey, remember, remember that time when this was going on and that notable figure was in charge? That's exactly what Luke is doing here. He's saying, look, this really happened, and this is when it happened, and this is who was in charge when it happened. And it says that they went to their own town to be registered. Now, you know this. Um, the, uh, college students have the most sympathy for this. Like, they live in a place but they don't really, like as far as the government is concerned, their address is still at their parents' house. You know what I'm talking about? A lot, of, if you're living in transition, like I'm, I'm living here, um, but, but in the other, in, the, in, in a real sense, my insurance company and my, and as far as the government and the IRS is concerned, I live over there. And this is the exact same thing that's going on here. There, there's a kind of a sense in which they, they trace back their steps, they go back so that they can be counted. And a census takes place not very often. So this is meant to be a marker for us to realize this is a big deal. Caesar would not skip so many years without counting his people. Why? Because he wanted to tax his people. He wanted to make some money. They go back. And when it's time, Mary gives birth. But when they go back, much is made of exactly what happened. Now here's, here's my just personal subtext that I, that I enter into. I kind of like submit this. If they went back to their family... Just, just a thought for you to maybe to ponder. Why did they have to go to the inn? Is it possible that the nature of the circumstances, is it possible that, that, that our beloved son Joseph, he's with a girl who says she's pregnant by God? Yeah, that's cool. I don't know how awkward your Christmas was, but imagine that one. Hey, 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 Joseph's coming back for, for, for the holidays and for the census. Oh, cool. And he's bringing that girl. Oh, that girl that he's betrothed to Mary. Why is he still with her? She says she's pregnant from God. I, I, I just read that into the text maybe a little bit too much, but for whatever reason, there was something going on, and they didn't get to stay with their family. Luke tells us they returned to their hometown, but for some reason, maybe to fulfill the prophet. Isaiah, and even as Jesus quotes later, the prophet is not welcome in his hometown. Maybe that even begins before Jesus is born. And it may be because of the circumstances in which they find themselves. Whatever the case may be, we only know that they, there was no fanfare. There was nothing special that took place. They went and they laid him in a manger. Now, much can be made that maybe this is really something that animals ate out of, and this is where all the songs and, and the Christmas stories start to enter animals into the mix. But it could just have been any sort of replacement for what we would use as a bassinet. 
But here's where the story gets crazy. As soon as the baby's born, this is where things start to turn. And verse 8 begins a story, or begins an account for the next few verses, that in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, and they were keeping their flocks by night. And then an angel showed up and announced the birth and says something amazing for us to consider. He says that the angel says to these people, fear not, which, side note, is one of the most common phrases in the entirety of the Bible. But when the angel shows up, he says, don't fear. Why should you not have fear? Because I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Now just think about this for just a moment. A king is born. And the Lord is born. The Savior is born, to use the angel's words. And the first person, the first people to hear this good news were some shepherds who had the night shift. Some shepherds who had the night shift. A couple of centuries later, we read from certain Jewish authors that shepherds were probably the lowest of low. Much is made of it. I'm, I'm not sure if I would go that far, but it's, it is, it's simply enough to say for us, maybe they're not the outcasts of society that some make shepherds out to be, but, but at the very least, they're, 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 not, that noto- they're not, not, not that noteworthy. How do I even know that? Luke doesn't even give us their name. Luke doesn't even tell us who they are. The first people to hear the gospel, to hear the good news that God is with us and for us, and the way that we know this is in Jesus Christ, were some people who don't get named who were stuck on the night shift. Don't miss this. God desires very greatly to enter into the mundane and the simple. If you get kind of past the baby scene, you begin to realize that God is doing something, and the first thing that he does, the first thing that he accomplishes is that he announces this to people who are unwittingly bystanders to the Savior of the world. They don't know. Now this is awesome. Especially the fact that it says that the Lord appeared and then he says that it's good news. Historically, you can kind of skim across the Old Testament and whenever it says that God's going to show up, like God is going to be there and angels show up, it's almost always bad. It is almost always bad. It's, it's as if God's like, don't make me come down there. And the picture that the prophets especially paint is that when God gets there, when he comes back, dude, you're going to be in trouble. And there's this picture painted of their rebellious state such that when God returns, he's going to clean up the joint. And all the things that these rebellious human beings have been doing over the course of time, running away from God, doing their own thing, pretending they're God, creating gods in replacement of God, their creator, There's this air that when God shows up, it's going to be bad news first. Just reflect on that just a minute. Just just catch that if you can, if you will. Just begin to realize that, that when the perfect and holy God shows up, those of us who are not perfect, those of us who are not holy, cannot stand in his presence. So much so that when... Moses, after having seen miraculous and amazing things, his last request of God, when God says, look, you've been faithful, what can I give you? What can I grant you? He says, look, God, I just want to see your glory one more time. And that's an amazing request for the guy who got to watch the Nile turn to blood, who got to watch amazing plagues, who got to watch firstborn children of thousands that just miraculously and amazingly die, while the other firstborns of the firstborn of Israel were delivered. And this guy, after seeing all of these things, says to God, I just want to see your glory one more time. And God says to him, I can't do that. 
Because if I do, you'll be gone. You'll be no more. So here's what I'll do. I'll hide you. And the phrase we get to use, for we get from right out of the Bible, it says, God says to Moses, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. And I'm going to put you in this little crack, this little fissure. I'm going to stick you in there. And I'm going to pass by. And after I pass by, I'm going to get your attention. I'm going to say, Moses, you can see my backside. Because if you were to see my face, you would be destroyed. And so he says, if you want to see me, the best I can give you is that I'll walk past you. And after I walk past you, I'll grab your attention. And you can see the, my backside as I walk away. When the presence of God is there, there's, there's destruction, there's fear. Because we who are unworthy cannot, we don't have the capacity or the ability to see God face to face. And what does the angel say, knowing that throughout time, every time the angels and the messengers show up and tell us that God's going to come, it's bad news. He says to these poor shepherds, don't fear, I'm giving you good news. Today, Christ the Lord is born. God is with you. God is among you. And while that may seem like bad news because you deserve his wrath, it in fact is good news. It's the same good news that you and I celebrate. It's the same good news that you and I still get excited about. So here, here's, a, here's, a, here's something for you. If, you. if you maybe you're in this room and this idea of Jesus sounds crazy, right? The, even just the things I've told you, there's a virgin who gives birth. Uh, there, he's going to come back and, and, and one day he's, he's going to bring a kingdom here. Sure, Jonathan, good for you, right? And some of that just begins to stretch your imagination to its limits. And I want to encourage you, if you don't believe that, if that's a difficult thing for you to conceive of, I want to just begin to maybe coax you to the possibility of opening your mind and opening your imagination to the possibility of this being true. And here's why. That it's actually good news. Not simply that there is a God and He does exist somewhere up there and out there, but that there is a God and as perfect and holy as He is, His will is to be glorified and draw attention to Himself, not by displaying His wrath, not by punishing you and making an example of you for everyone to see, but by using you as an example to display His mercy. He desires to be known throughout all of the nations. Glory to God in the highest, the multitude of angels sing. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Not wrath, not destruction, not chaos, but read it in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, on earth, peace. Peace. Isn't that good news? This is the same good news we celebrate. This is the same good news we huddle around. And look at the way it's illustrated for us. We see the picture of the Trinity. Here's something that we believe distinctly as Christians in the word Trinity, although it's not a word that's in the Bible. It's the best way that we can make a proposition to explain the nature of God. So God is, is creator. God is, a, God is a starter. He is an instigator. He is the first cause of all things. God was uncreated, and this is God we call a father or creator. But then there's a God who is present in spirit, not to create, but to sustain, but to hold things up, to give life to death, to raise Jesus from the dead, and to be present so that all people would hear and open hearts to hearing this good news of Jesus. But then there's a son. There is Jesus who is Christ, Messiah, the Lord. And so we get this picture that Christians make a great deal of because it's our best way of making sense of what the Bible tells us about a God who creates, a God who is present with us in spirit, and a God who is with us and among us in flesh. That is Jesus. And don't be scared by it. It's a, it's a crazy word, but, but it's meant to convey something that God is doing. And every time we talk about doctrine and we make 
theological propositions, understand that there are analogies to point to make sense of something that's in Scripture. Does the word Trinity fully convey all that God is? Is God somehow bound by it? Absolutely not. But it's our best explanation of the words of Jesus. So when they said to Jesus, hey, like, you know, you know, what should we do with you? And he's like, hey, I and the Father are one. And they're like, wait, wait, are you mean you're the same thing? He's like, yes, we are the same thing. We are the, yes, we are. And the way we, ex- we describe that is through the Trinity. We say that they are the same substance. They are consubstantial. They are made of the same thing. But they're not simply the same thing in different modes, like wearing different masks. They're distinct persons. And they each have a distinct role and function. Not simply a mode, but an actual personhood. That which God creates, that which God sustains, and that which God redeems all through his persons. You say, well, why are you talking about that? Because did you catch any of that going on in, that bo- in this chapter? Did you get God is doing something, and then it says that he sends angels to tell them that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Lord, and then it says that someone in the power of the Spirit, Simeon and Anna, by the Spirit, see that Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus is God, that God is redeeming them through Jesus. Why is this important? This, I believe, is a stopgap and a protection for us. I want to always emphasize this, especially when we're in the book of Luke and when we are in the book of Acts, like we were this last year. Every time that the Spirit is at work, he is glorifying himself by pointing to Jesus. This is a big deal for us. So if I ever stand in front of you and I say, hey, the Holy Spirit says to me, fill in the blank, and that fill in the blank thing isn't glorying, that fill in the blank thing isn't glorifying to Jesus, then I'm a liar. And you should proceed with a great deal of caution. Because every time that the Spirit is at work, the Spirit is testifying to Jesus. Verse 26, it had been revealed to him that is that is Simeon, who by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. What did the Spirit tell him? Told him who Jesus was, revealed to him the saving and redeeming nature of Jesus. Now, I don't know how awesome your Christmas was, but in verse 29, Simeon says, look, I can die in peace now. I've seen it. I know it. God God is real and his promise is sure. And the Spirit testified to the Lord. So anytime that we as a group seem to set our sights on what the Spirit might do and where the Spirit might lead, we always look for the ways in which Christ is glorified. Why? Because every time the Spirit is at work, it is always to draw attention to Jesus. Whether it's breathing life into Jesus' dead body or opening the hearts of people that they might hear this good news that Jesus is for them. This is the measurement. So right now, this hopefully will set some of you at ease. You're like, I don't know what to do. I, I've got some big decisions um, weighing on my shoulders and like they have these big big life direction questions that are coming up in the next weeks or months or years and you don't know where to go and and your first inclination is to kind of kind of weigh the circumstances and then maybe to ask some friends and then and the last at the last resort we go i wonder what god wants me to do and i want to encourage you the first thing that god wants you to do is to glorify his son that's what he does and when you're looking for ways that the spirit might be leading you here's the good news The only way that the Spirit works is to draw attention to His Son. So if you're like, I don't know whether I should move to Omaha or Minneapolis, I'm going to beat you. God doesn't care. God wants to glorify His Son. God is sending His Spirit spirit to glorify His Son. And He can do that wherever you live. And you can be disobedient to that wherever you live. 
But ultimately, the Spirit's goal isn't for you to have prosperity and happiness in this life. It's for the joy to reach the nations. Rest at ease. God's will is not hinging on your next decision. God will bring attention to his redemption, and he will do it through the power of his Spirit. But not only is the picture of the Trinity here, but there's also a picture of humility. This is not a celebrity birth. Why? This is not a high-profile birth. Why? This is not the kind of birth befitting of a king in this world. Why? Aren't those things fitting? Doesn't Jesus deserve those things? Isn't it right for Jesus to have entered in such a way that all people see and know that he is good? There's a beautiful thing that is demonstrated for us, that God is not interested in the ways of human beings, in the way that we would draw attention. Here's what I would argue. When this, it's, it's humble, is it not? It's like they, Jesus shows up and then, and then some weird things happen, but the first people to hear about it are some shepherds, not celebrities. So why? Why was there not celebrity birth? I believe it's because Jesus didn't come to save celebrities. Why was there no royal treatment? Why? Because Jesus didn't come only to save royalty. Why were there no celebrity visitations? I mean, there were just some humble shepherds that probably smelled bad, and they wandered in to see the baby. Oh, by the way, hey, Mary, an angel told us to come see your, your baby. Um, that's not weird. Like, yeah, let here, hold my baby, right? I, th- this is the kind of the scenario that's strangely going on, and it's because God means to do this. God doesn't mean to save only royalty. There's no celebrity visits because Jesus didn't come for celebrity visitation. Jesus came to the humble and regular so that you and I would lose our aspirations that this world imposes upon us for celebrity fame and achievement and simply receive that there is no greater gift than to know who Jesus is. The first hosts were nobody. We don't even know their names. It just knows that there was a guy who apparently had a full in. The first visitors were shepherds. We don't even know their names. No names. No shepherds' names. No innkeepers' names. No family's names. Why is that? Because when God works, he means to be the amazing thing that happens. When God does something, he means to draw attention to himself. And Jesus comes into the mess. Jesus happily and gladly comes into mediocrity, into the mundane, into the messy. Why? So that the spectacular thing that happened becomes him. You see, Jesus will not share the stage with you. Jesus comes for all the attention. He must because he is going to save all the people. And God likes to work in the unexpected places so that he gets the glory. But let me just kind of unfold this just briefly because you see some, some unknown people that, that get name as they, as, they, as they mention, but they're not famous anywhere else in the Bible. They're not particularly noteworthy anywhere else in history. Luke is the first person who introduces us to, to Anna and to Simeon, and I, I think this is why. You see, my own temptation, my own desire is to find my achievement, a sense of accomplishment and sense of significance in my own behavior, in my own accomplishment and the things that I do. I was raised in a family that had, we had some, some relatives that, that made it to, uh, to the professional level of athletics, right? Like I had, I had a, some, a pro football player, a pro golfer, uh, a, pro, a pro baseball player in, in my family. Um, I mean, this is kind of where I came from. I mean, they're not famous. You wouldn't know them, right? But they made it, right? For at least that brief moment, 
they made it. They, they made it happen. A whole bunch of other people in my family that like, had like scholarships to play sports all over the country. And so my brother and I uh, unwittingly were kind of raised in the culture in which like your significance and your, the way you're remembered in this family is by athletic achievement. And you know this. If you know any athletes, man, it's a cult. Like the, it's everything. Right? You can't eat out with them. Because they're like, oh, I, I can't do this because I gotta, I gotta eat this thing and I have to, because I'm counting my calories and I'm eating and I'm doing it right. And you're like, okay, please, thank you. On behalf of all of Facebook, we don't care about your workout, right? We don't, we don't need to hear more about it. It's a cult, is it not? It's, it's, it's a commitment to life. And I'm telling you this from my own experience. I, I found a great deal of achievement and satisfaction. And the reason why I did is because I got a lot of glory. It's one place in the world where if you achieve and you do something, literally a bunch of people cheer for you and clap. I didn't get any better than that. It's my temptation to kind of seek that out. That's kind of how I'm predisposed in my own family. Even though these people are not really famous, I mean, they're just, in my own family, they're famous. And we know who they are. And I desired very greatly to be like them. And so when that fell apart, likely when you met me, no one introduced you to me as like, here's Jonathan, the famous athlete, right? It didn't happen. And so as that kind of dissipated, I was left in just a pit and depth of depression. Because the thing that I had fixed my identity into, I know it's silly, it's a game. It's boys playing with a ball. I, I st- when I think about that today, I just, it blows my mind. Right? All of this for boys playing with a ball. And I, my, that was my life. It was who I was. And when it began to dissipate, I was just left in agony and depression. Because I had put my hope into something else that had no ability to give me hope. And in those moments, I began to realize something beautiful, that that is actually where God desires to work the best. That thing has no ability to give joy on a long-term basis. That thing has no joy to give satisfaction other than momentary. That thing has no ability to save, redeem, and give you happiness. It only has the ability to please you and make you feel like you're worth something in that moment. And then it passes. And this story is meant to show you that it's not your sense of significance and accomplishment and your sense of entitlement to things that gives you joy. It's what God does for you that gives us joy and identity. So rest easy. If you find yourself in a place where you're like, I just am not as great as I thought I was going to be. If you find yourself looking in the mirror and like, this is not, I'm not an astronaut. Right? I am not, I'm not a princess. I'm not all the things that my parents told me to be. I'm not a snowflake. In fact, I look a lot like the people I know. And if you find that, and, and, he, and that's a wall for you that's depressing and discouraging, I want you to hear this good news. That, that's what makes you beautiful to God. That's what makes you perfect to God. He made you that way. And he wants you to stop trying to find your significance in those things because he has something amazing he wants to do for you. Did you catch who gets to be the people who experience joy and glorify God? It's the no-name shepherds. It's the no-name shepherds of all the noteworthy people, and Luke named a few. It's the no-name shepherds that get to hear the good news that God is for them in Jesus. Rest easy, friend. Rest easy. You you have low self-esteem. You have low self-worth. That's exactly where God wants you to have your sense of identity, because he doesn't want to give you self-esteem. He wants to give you Jesus-esteem. He wants to esteem you by his presence, not by your performance. I worry that like the self-esteem movement and the snowflake movement, as I like to call it, has just made me and others not need Jesus. 
God likes to work in these unexpected places. This is my prayer for our church, that if this ever becomes any about anything, if this ever becomes about anything other than this good news of Jesus, I pray the Lord like makes it disappear and go away. I pray it's only something that happens in such a way that God gets the glory. And the Bible's not against excellence. In fact, there's a lot of beautiful things that, that God gives us to be excellent. But it's just that, like Ecclesiastes 9, whatever your hand finds to do, you do with all your might. Colossians 3, 23, we know this. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that the Lord will receive the inheritance as your reward. From the Lord you will receive that inheritance. It's not that we don't do things excellent. We, in fact, do them better than anyone else. It's just that we do them differently, according to 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So, Christian, be excellent. Make money. Make tons of money. But do it for the glory of God. Do business well. Some of you are gifted in this. Be businessmen and women. Be great at it. Be the best. But do so not for your own glory, do it for his. Whatever your hands find to do, we do for his glory. Because the story ends up not being about the shepherds, the story ends up being about the Lord, and the shepherds are the people who get to share the gospel first. Here's what scares me about this story. I fear that there are so many people that we know who are not lowly at all. They're not humbly waiting like Simeon for God to save them. They're not like quietly, daily. Did you get the discipline of this woman? Uh, daily going to the temple like Anna. I fear they're, the people we know, they're, they're just, they're, we don't know any lowly people. In fact, we've spent all of our energy not being to, so that we won't be in need. And we've spent a great deal of time and energy and money so that we don't have to feel what all the people in this story feel, a sense of longing. I mean, I could be wrong, but was that like the, was being the shepherd on the night shift that night, was that the greatest job opportunity ever? Could they have loved it? Could they have, uh, this, yeah, this is, this is it, guys. We've made it. Right, and then you can hear, shut up. Stop talking to the sheep. You're upsetting the sheep. Let the sheep sleep, right? Like this, can, can you get, the, there's a reason why counting sheep puts you to sleep, Right? That's the night shift these guys got. That couldn't have been their dream. Their parents couldn't have been sitting around going like, man, one day you're going to be a shepherd. And even their dreams for them probably were greater. Even if it was, you're going to be a shepherd, but it's going to be the greatest flock ever. Everyone will remember it. Apparently not. And yet it's there. It's in that place that God comes and shows himself. What What I'm scared about this story is that All the people who receive Jesus here are unlikely. Including the parents that lost them, Jesus, for three days, right? All the people who receive Jesus are unlikely recipients. And I fear that you and I have spent so much time and energy finding our sense of identity in the things of this world, doing everything we can to separate ourselves from the feelings of longing and angst that we see in these characters that we might missing out on Jesus. So what do we do here? What's our response? I believe it is that we see Jesus for who he really is. We open our eyes to the fact that God is glorifying himself over and over and over. We see this, that God is 
being praised and Jesus is growing in God's favor. And over and over and over again, we see that God is glorified. And the way that God is glorified is that he wants to be glorified by saving his people. God could very well show up tomorrow and be glorified and known by all of the people in this world by the wrathful judge that he has the right to be. If he wanted to, he could show up and he could destroy everything because everyone deserves it. But that isn't what God wants to do. Instead, God wants to demonstrate his character to us by saving us. And while God could have on high chosen me from eternity past as a great example to hold up, see, this is what happens when you are a sinful, rebellious wretch. Instead, he has taken me and you and said, see, this is what happens when you trust me. I can redeem you. I can pull you out of this. And this is what we read, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul passes on this good thing that Jesus has done for us. And he says that I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body. Hear this from the perspective of the shepherds and from Simeon and from Anna, who had longed to hear these words. Jesus says to his disciples and to you and me, this is my body, which is for you. This is for you. God desires to be glorified by sending me for you. In the same way, he also took the cup, and after supper, he said, this is the cup, this cup, this is the new covenant, this is the new agreement that God has made with us, and it's in my blood, so do this now, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. And I think, if we get past the baby part of the story, I think if we get past kind of the the easy, happy, silent night, holy night, which is great, because the last couple of verses that sing about something amazing are awesome. I'm going to put a hand sanitizer here, and you'll see why. I think if we get past it, We kind of dig into something that's much greater, much deeper. And we see that this baby being born is born for a purpose, is born for something that's greater than, than, than we tend to celebrate babies. And I want you to see this for what it's worth. I want you to maybe grasp this Christmas, okay? I want you to see that multiple times Luke says that there was a baby, and, and we took this beautiful baby and we wrapped the baby in cloths, right? Why? Why why would we do this? We want to protect this little baby and laid it in a manger, a place it didn't belong. So much put into this baby, this beautiful little baby, so that one day this beautiful little baby that we would love and hold would be torn and broken for you and for me, such that the saving work of Jesus would be the sustaining and powerful presence that we see every Christmas. God is doing something for his glory, and he's broken his son, this baby, beautiful boy. And he is entering into the mess happily so that you and I in the mess would see that his broken body is for you and for me. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for how good you are. We thank you so much for your mercy. We thank you so much uh, for this season. We thank you for the hope that we receive in Jesus Christ. We thank you that this promise has been fulfilled for us. Uh, The celebration of Christmas is not a waste of time, God, but instead it's a beautiful thing that points to a greater reality. We thank you that you've done this for us, even in our helplessness, even in the ways that we could not save ourselves, you came to be with us and for us. We want to celebrate this meaningfully and rightfully. We want to celebrate this 
not just simply as the world might because there's presents that come our way that seem good for us in this moment, but we want to celebrate this as people who have eternally found our home, who have found our sense of significance, has been redeemed and restored by the blood of your Son. Help us not to miss this beautiful thing that you've done for us. Help us, even when we see the baby in the manger, to see the sacrifice that you were willing to make for us. Help us to see that even when we see the baby in the manger, that God, you loved us so much that you sent a son for us, that if we would trust and receive this gift, that we would not perish, but have eternal life. Help us that when we see this baby in the manger, we would realize that while we were dead in our trespasses, while we were running for God, running from God, you sent instead not to condemn us, but your son to redeem us and restore us, even while we were the enemy. This is good news that deserves full acceptance. In Jesus Christ's name we ask it. Amen.